Politics Podcast, the Cheaper by the Dozen edition. It's Friday, May 22nd, and my name is Keith Jirayan. I'm serving as guest host this week for uh, Sarah O'Donnell, who's out of town at the National Newspaper Awards. Very exciting for her. We finally got some indication this week as to what Rachel Notley's government is going to look like and the first few steps it plans to take. We'll talk about her plans for a cabinet, a short legislative session, and even a little controversy regarding the swearing-in ceremony. Here to help me sort through all this are three very distinguished and and remarkably good-looking panelists from the Edmonton (laughs) Journal. We have legislature reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. We have city columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Keith. And we have legislature columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started with Rachel Notley's cabinet, uh, the members of which are going to be sworn in this Sunday. We don't know any names yet, but already this cabinet is raising eyebrows for another reason. Miriam, what are, what are people talking about? Uh, well, the size, as the name of this week's podcast suggested. Uh, Rachel Notley says that she's going to have a 12-person cabinet, including herself, and, and that really immediately got people talking because uh, recently in Alberta we haven't seen a cabinet that size. Uh, I think actually you have to go back to the social credit era to find a cabinet that was smaller or at least equally uh, equally as small. And so that was pretty interesting and it really started to spark a lot of discussion about what was prompting that decision to keep the cabinet to 12. Wow, okay. So does that mean we're going to see a lot fewer ministries? Are we going to see ministries kind of mashed together like they did with human services a few years ago? No, we are going to see the same number of ministries. None of them are going to be collapsed. None are going to be merged. Instead, what we're going to see are ministers who are responsible to more than one department. So that's that's It'll be interesting to see how they pair up different ministries. Obviously, you don't want to put too many really big ministries together with one person. And it'll be interesting to see who who gets what. We only have uh, four incumbent NDP MLAs right. in the legislature, uh, including the premier-designate, Rachel Notley. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how she manages to sort of divvy up the ministry responsibilities among among the team of people she assembles. Yeah, I mean, this is a remarkably small cabinet. It's a big change. I think I remember Alison Redford's last cabinet, like basically all half of her MLAs were, were in the cabinet. So this is this is really, really small. So Graham and Paula, I, I mean, what should we read into this? Is, is Notley trying to kind of out-conservative the conservatives? Like, I can run a, a government with a smaller group than you can? Or, or is this a small cabinet that's kind of dictated by necessity? I think it's, um, and partly she's trying to say, look, we're not going to be a big government. Uh, the stereotypical NDP big government. She's trying to send a message out that, in fact, she'll try and do things a bit bit more efficiently. I have a question about how they can actually run with only 12 ministers because the workload is going to be incredible. Right. Not just the workload. Uh, part of the job is letting stakeholders come and meet with ministers, and it's tough enough when a minister has a big, enough, a big uh, portfolio when he or she has maybe two or three portfolios Getting in to see that minister is going to be impossible for the stakeholders. So I'm really curious as to how it's going to actually work out. I mean, part of this is pragmatism. She has a very green caucus. There are some highly qualified people, despite all the Twitter carping about the few people who are not so highly qualified. I mean, Miriam and Graham and Karen uh, today have a, a big piece in the journal where they took like the top 15 contenders. I could have, I think, added another five names to that list. It's not that she couldn't put together a cabinet of 20 people. I, I think maybe the argument in her head was the smaller your core management team, the easier things are to manage. And there are lots of you know management manuals that will tell you that 12, 13 people is actually the optimal size for a, a steering committee for any kind of, 
of large enterprise. But I think what you can say about this is that this is a kind of a, a stepping stone cabinet. I don't think this is the size of cabinet we're going to have eight, 12 or 18 months from now. I think this is her starter cabinet. Well, and we, I, may, we may actually see sort of like junior ministers or associate ministers get appointed to these some of these... Uh, ministries so that they can maybe get their feet wet a little bit so that when we do see another cabinet appointed, some of these people have had a chance then to get familiar with some of the files and, you know, the premier gets to see how they work, uh, you know, in that kind of a role. Yeah, but in the interim, it's going to put a tremendous weight on Rachel Notley herself, who probably will take on at least one cabinet portfolio in addition to being premier, uh, to Brian Mason, who's going to be the house leader, probably in addition to another couple of portfolios, and to David Egan and Darren Billis, who are the other experienced MLAs. Uh, I think for that core group, the workload is going to be really daunting. They're going to have to be the pressure on horses that pull this wagon. Right. Okay. Well, you've named four of the people who are going to be in this cabinet, very likely anyway, and have a lot of responsibility. Who are some of the other names that maybe we don't know as well that might be in this cabinet? I was going to say, Miriam did a really good piece this morning in the paper, had uh, 15 people, including the four obvious ones, and Joe C.C. in Calgary. I'll let Miriam talk more about the people. And it's interesting, the actual background of some of these people is quite impressive. Um, you know, lawyers and professionals. I'll let Miriam talk more about that. Yeah, there are. Well, she obviously has to be careful not to stack cabinet with people from Edmonton, which is already where the incumbents are from. Uh, and there is a lot of potential in Edmonton. Obviously, Sarah Hoffman's name is one that was immediately tossed around as a potential minister. But uh, as well, there are there are people down in Calgary that have obviously a very good chance. Joe C.C. is one who was an alderman um, for Calgary Council for for 15 years and has a pretty high profile there. He was their sort of star candidate in Calgary before the NDP realized maybe. Maybe they could actually win this thing, you know. And there are there are others. Um, Stephanie McLean, who's you know a 28 year old lawyer who's started her own law firm. Mm. There's uh, uh, folks in rural ridings as well. Bob Wanner, who who in Medicine Hat won the riding after he stepped in for a candidate that had to <laughs> withdraw. And but he's very accomplished. He I mean, does. He's, he's he an was MBA. The, he's been a senior uh, senior uh, civil manager, servant yeah. in, um, in 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 for the city of Medicine Hat. He was their sort of public administrator. So that's definitely. And I also think Medicine Hat is sort of the orange little island surrounded by a lot of wild rose riding. So it would make that sense. Lethbridge, yes. So that's it would make sense again. Lethbridge also Lethbridge West. Shannon Phillips is uh, a likely contender. She was a policy analyst for the Alberta Federation of Labor and has been working really hard in that riding, riding to build up support for the NDP. And and to the north, there are a few contenders as well. Colin Piquette in um, Athabasca Sturgeon Redwater is one. He's got quite a long resume. Um, he sat on the Chamber of... Uh, president, president of the chamber, is that what they call them? Yeah, this head, you know, he's, he's the head of the Boyle Chamber of he's, Council. He's head of everything right. in Boyle. He's the, the, the head, Agricultural you know. Society. Yeah. Uh, he's, ta- he's taught uh, ethics and law at the University of Alberta. His father was an NDP MLA in the 80s, um, so I think that's a potential too. And you know, the, it's fascinating to me to see how difficult it is going to be for her to overcome the criticism that is already out there. I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying, well, who would she make agriculture minister? There's nobody here with any agricultural experience. So I pointed out that uh, O'Neill Carlier, who's uh, one of the MLAs for Northern Alberta, spent 20 years working for Agriculture Canada. And they said, well, but like, is he a real farmer? And I said, well, he was a, you know, a soil agrologist and he grew up (laughs) on a farm and a ranch. And they said, well, what kind of experience is that? And I thought, all right, disengage from this conversation because <laughs> you know you, you cannot win. You can point out the fallacies in people's assumptions, 
But, you know, the, the fact is no matter who she appoints, the criticism is going to be unremitting off the top. Yeah. Well, even, even the size of, of cabinet, if she had gone with a large cabinet, being typical NDP big cabinet, she goes with a really small 12-member cabinet, it's because she has no talent at all in, in her caucus. So, yeah, she'll, she'll be slammed, whatever she does now. Right. Welcome to politics. Welcome to politics. <laughs> well, we'll find out the names for sure on Sunday when the swearing-in ceremony happens outside on the front steps of the legislature, <laughs> which is a, a big free change. free ice cream. Free ice cream for the kids, and that's a big change from uh, past ceremonies. But, Miriam, it seems the NDP got into a little hot water over this ceremony already, perhaps their first significant controversy since the election. Uh, what's going on here? Well, after the swearing-in ceremony was announced, an email was sent out to NDP supporters inviting them to attend, saying it's a family-friendly event. And at the same time, a lot of these invitations were shared on Twitter by the Premier-designate herself and other NDP MLAs. And there was an RSV button uh, on this invitation, and if you click to it, it sort of brought you through to a link where you could RSVP with your name, and then you were brought to a page to make a donation to the party. And so this raised eyebrows uh, with people saying that this was the NDP using a government event, a swearing-in ceremony, to solicit donations for the party and sort of blurring the line between partisan and government activities. Wow, okay. A criticism people would be familiar with. (laughs) We often saw leveled against the the PC government as well. And it's such a shame because this should have been a perfect moment for them. You know, she's elected. She's got huge popular support. She has a wonderful public event on the steps of the legislature. And I saw this and I thought, seriously? You know, who was thinking about this? I mean, it is just so tacky. It, it, It takes away from what could have been a, a beautifully orchestrated public relations event because it's the worst kind of sleazy marketing. I mean, you would hate that if you went to a commercial website, you know, to, to look at something and they tried to extort money from you. It, you know, it's not even about the ethics of politics. It's about the optics of, you know, what looks elegant. And the thing that I find really perturbing is having stepped in this they can't seem to extricate themselves. I mean, when, when Don Braid of the Calgary Herald, I think, was among the first journalists to bring this to their attention, they couldn't seem to wrap their heads around why this was a terribly bad idea to turn a public event into a partisan fundraising shakedown. Uh, you know, and, and Graham spoke to them later in the day yesterday, and they still can't seem to understand why this is just yeah, well, how, did, how did that conversation go? Well, the thing is, uh, we got word of it this yesterday morning. We got emails from people saying something's going on here. So the calls began going out to various people in the uh, the party. And I talked to Brian Stokes with the NDP, and they just didn't see anything wrong with it. I know that uh, I know Dom was saying that peop- that they're bringing down the link. No, they weren't. The link was not cut. I talked to Brian yesterday. One person in the party said we're going to we're going to cut off the link, the donation link. Well, it wasn't when I was talking to them. And then Brian said, well, look, you know, I'll, I'll look into this. And I never heard back from them. The issue here is this is an event paid for by taxpayers. This is a nonpartisan event to celebrate the, uh, the introduction, the swearing in of a premier and the cabinet. And so what the party is doing is, is using this as a fundraiser. And they don't see any problem with that. What, what they're arguing is, look, the, 
the web page is definitely the NDP web page. It's not a government web page. People know it's from the NDP, not from the government. The Twitter account that was sending out invitations from uh, Notley was uh, her personal account, not the government's account. Yes, but, but which will be interesting because I don't. I, I've never seen a premier in Alberta with like two separate accounts. Apart and so the big splitting the hairs on this, right? So they just did not. I would say to them, imagine this was the PCs swearing in a new premier and they're using it to, as a fundraiser. The critics would be all over the government for doing that. I think they just can't get their heads around the fact that they've won. I mean, one of their supporters <laughs> said to me, you know, why are you picking on a not-for-profit organization? And I thought, oh, sweeties, see, you're not like the poor little underdogs anymore. You won. You have to carry yourselves as the government, not as the little guy fighting for every scrap you can get, because you get all the money now. I mean, you have huge resources, not the party, but but the government. I mean, Rachel Notley is not the NDP leader now. She is the premier of all Albertans, and her swearing in is for all Albertans. It is not a private party fundraising event. And to besmirch it in this way just makes them look petty and naive and and ham-fisted. I mean, and what it says to me is that she very, A, she very quickly needs to get control of the party and to make the party understand. I mean, you know, various Tory premiers have had this problem in the past, too, that she is the boss and the party is not supposed to come up with antics like this without the approval of her chief of staff and her office. And second of all, she has to get professional comms people in who can manage an issue like this. I mean, they need to step up their A game here. I don't know if this is controversy or not, but should we read anything into the fact that the first cabinet meeting is going to be in Calgary? And I've already heard speculation that this means that there's going to be a ton of Edmontonians in Rachel Notley's first cabinet, and she needs to do something to make sure Calgary doesn't feel forgotten. Is that likely? Well, we'll see what happens on Sunday with who's actually in cabinet. Um, No, I think it's smart to do it in Calgary because the NDP is really seen as as an we're based in Edmonton, or the party's based in Edmonton. That's the impression people have. Calgary gets um, a chip on its shoulder really quickly over these things and starts to dissect whatever announcements come from the government. Even under the PC government, if something came for Edmonton, Calgary wants the equal. So I Of think course, Edmontonians are never like that. Never, <laughs> no. no, no. We're, we're above that kind of thing. But Calgary... We don't get twitchy-eyed, never. No. <laughs> because Calgary um, is going to watch this very carefully, I think it's, it's a smart move politically to go down there and say, here, here we are, we're not scary. In fact, a, a lot of uh, people in Calgary voted for the NDP, even though a lot right. of them won because of vote splitting. Yeah, the, I mean, the other thing about talking to Calgarians is that's also code for talking to the oil patch. Right. Um, and Rachel Notley has been spending a lot of time massaging people in the oil patch, trying to convince them that the sky is not falling and that she's not Hugo Chavez and that, you know, they shouldn't be packing and fleeing for the Saskatchewan or Montana borders. So, you know, yes, they'll be speaking to Calgarians of the sort that Joe Cece represents, but also that's speaking to the corporate community in Calgary to settle nerves. So we'll have cabinet sworn in, cabinet will meet. What are the next steps, Miriam? What is the government also going to do in the next uh, few weeks and few months? So we are going to see a session this summer. Hooray! I love session. Um, <laughs> be a very, very short <laughs> session. Yes, I know. <laughs> but all the best bits, God, the grants. Why do you have to take all the fun out of it? Yeah. Uh, so there's going to be on June 11th. We're going to see a uh, the, the legislature reconvene to elect a new speaker. The legislature is going to come back on June 15th for a speech from the throne. 
which Rachel Notley described as a get right down to business speech. She talked about a few bills that would be introduced as well. We don't really know anything about those yet. But most importantly, we're going to see an interim supply bill um, brought forward so that government uh, operations can continue to be funded after June 30th when the current funding expires because, of course, we don't have a budget. Yeah. How does this work? Because when Jim Prentice introduced his budget back in March, it wasn't passed. We had the election. And so there it's was still inter- not passed. Right. right. So after the budget was introduced, there was interim supply bills brought forward by the PC government to fund government operations through June 30th because they knew we were going to be heading into an election. But those those supply orders are are temporary measures. They don't fund government operations through the fiscal year. They 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 can extend billions of dollars of funding, uh, obviously, to fund to fund continued operations, things that need to obviously continue moving as Rachel Notley and her and her fledgling sort of government take hold of, of their new responsibilities. So that's what we're going to see. And and she, she she said that she brought the legislature back so that people could actually debate interim supply and debate the funding. Because the other option was to just pass special warrants and approve funding in cabinet. But of course, mm. that is um, free from any sort of public scrutiny. What right. happens in cabinet is secret. We get the orders afterwards, but we don't really get to know about how decisions were made or why. Right. Okay. So, yeah, so this is a much more democratic move, but it is it is bizarre if you think about it. We are still operating on the Allison Redford Doug Horner budget. I mean, Allison Redford hasn't been premier for a long time. We've had, th- you know, three premiers since Allison Redford, but you know th- th- that budget is still like the zombie budget that, that that still is is the template that we're working from. It's it's odd, and yet I understand why they want to wait until the fall to come back with a proper budget. Because, you know, this is going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of consultation with with Treasury. They have to figure out, you know, what's what have they got in the kitty? What is the price of oil going to be doing? Uh, what are their funding priorities supposed to be? It, I, I can't imagine how they could have come up with a budget that they could live with in the next five, six weeks. Well, and this kind of leads into the last topic I want to get into, which is is probably that the NDP government does need some time to deal with what I think is perhaps their biggest challenge, which is kind of dealing with all the expectations that are on them now, right? Environmentalists, unions, cities, health workers, teachers, small businesses, it seems everybody believes that life is going to get better under this NDP government. How are they going to manage that? <laughs> the workload Free is ab- ice cream for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, um, the workload is absolutely daunting. And you mentioned the budget. The budget is a huge document that deals with everything in society, of course. And it's all kinds of questions about how they start, they start collecting taxes on the corporations, how they start collecting taxes on the, on the average Albertans who are wealthy. That has to go through Ottawa. You know, when it comes to corporate taxes, they can they can raise them in Alberta and collect them here. When it comes to income tax, they're going to do that through uh, the CRA. There's questions like that, and all the things about like today's front page story was on the minimum wage. They're going to start raising that. A climate change strategy. My little hobby horse, which she promised to get in a month or two after being elected, it's not going to happen. So I think it takes time. And the one precedent we have here we can look at is Peter Lougheed. When he was elected, they won the election in August the 30th. They were sworn in September the 10th. They didn't have a new budget until the following March. They brought the session in, a full session in March. 1971, 72. 72. Wow. So, so, they, so, they, so they kept coasting on a SoCred budget. Right. So it was it was six months before they actually brought in a new, a new session and a new budget. It, these things take time. People say, well, why do you keep mentioning Lougheed? Because two reasons. Because people, if, if they had gone back too early... They would have made a lot of mistakes. 
They're taking their time to do it properly, and they're being slammed for taking too long. But then look at history. The precedent is, even in other provinces, it takes time for the transition of power. We're not used to the transition of power. It's been 44 years. So give them some time. But they've got a lot of promises they've got to keep as well, besides the budget. It's interesting. I, I was giving a speech last night to a group of lawyers and judges. So you know, the subject of legal aid came up. And it's just one tiny little microcosm sort of example. It's really easy when you're in the opposition to say, we need more money for legal aid. We need more money for the Misericordia Hospital. Now they have to figure out where to get the money and and how to manage those expectations because those expectations are huge. And, and you're right, Keith. Everybody thinks that, you know, I, I, I keep talking about the magic Rachel dust, you know, that, that she will be she will be premier and everything will be lovely and everything will be wonderful and, you know, the flowers will bloom and the birds will sing. And when it comes right down to it, she's got the same problems that Jim Prentice inherited from, you know, from Hancock and Redford. She's got spending that outstrips revenues. She's got Albertans who... Uh, who are not interested in looking in the mirror, and she has to figure out how on earth she can keep everybody happy and still keep the books in some semblance of order. Graham talks about the president of Peter Lougheed. The president that haunts her is Bob Ray in Ontario, who was elected with huge expectations that he would make everything wonderful. And when he started to make really pragmatic decisions about balancing Ontario's budget, the very coalition of people who got him elected turned on him, knifed him in the back, and got Mike Harris as their next premier. So, you know, the, the message she needs to send to people is, I cannot meet all of your expectations, not in the first six months, not in the first 18 months. It might take me four years to meet most of them. And, you know, people who want her agenda to succeed are going to have to give her some time and some patience to get there because if people are going to expect magic solutions instantly they're going to be sorely disappointed and this is going to be a one-term government well we have a, a oh. prediction from yeah. paula oh yeah, well, finally I, I, don't, I don't make predictions but that's that's a, that's a hypothetical i mean if people if people i'll, I'll if, see you in four years i'm yes. writing this yeah. down <laughs> it seems like a reasonable one <laughs> Well, we have just a bit of time left for our final segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. This is where we share something we've enjoyed reading or listening to or watching, and we hope that you check it out. So I'll start with Paula. Paula, what have you got us got for us today? Well, I'm going to recommend a really remarkable essay by Michael Corrin in The Walrus. Michael Corrin is probably best known in Canada for being a very right-wing Catholic, um, you know, anti-gay columnist. Well, this is called Coming Out. Uh, he's not coming out as gay, but he's coming out and saying he's left the Catholic Church, that he now believes that their uh, policy about gay marriage and gay rights is very wrong-headed. And it's really interesting. He says in the essay that he never really believed those things and that that makes him worse because he was a <laughs> hypocrite, because he knew that in his heart, you know, some of his best friends were gay. It's a very interesting piece of self-criticism spotted through with a little bit of self-delusion. But Corin has always been a great and provocative writer. So uh, whether you think this is too little, too late, or whether you think this is his road to Damascus moment, it's a fascinating read in The Walrus. All right. Miriam, what about you? So I'm going to recommend Colby Kosh has a big profile on Rachel Notley in this week's McLean's. Um, so it's called, let me read my writing, How Rachel Notley Became Canada's Most Surprising Star. I feel like it should probably say Most Surprising Political Star, but it's a great profile. It's got a lot of different voices, too, in it, um, sort of, you know, people from her past. Um, 
All right. My recommendation. Uh, my recommendation this week is a piece in Slate magazine by Rebecca Schumann. It's called "The Hierarchy of Humanity's Schadenfreude," and this is sort of a <laughs> uh, sort of a, a something uh, close to my heart. Who has a lowly history degree? Um, it's just an interesting article about within the humanities, which is already maligned. There seems to be a a pecking order even there, and a lot of the criticism of humanities uh, and people who study the humanities and teach the humanities comes from people in other humanities disciplines, uh, and it, I found it quite fascinating. Uh, Graham, what about you? I'm going by memory here. It's on, it's on my iPhone, and I left the iPhone in a car. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking of an article. Actually, I read the article for free on my iPhone, and I feel bad because people should be paying for journalism. And I, I'm doing that thing I shouldn't be doing with my fellow journalists, and that is reading stuff for free. Anyway, it's a Washington Post article uh, on Barack Obama's visit to South Dakota, I think it is. One of the Dakotas. Uh, he was doing the 50, all 50 states in his term of office. But what was interesting is the person who wrote this particular article was not covering his speech. He was covering the reaction from this small town. This is an area that does not like Barack Obama. And it's the Americans, even though they don't like Barack Obama personally, the sense of ceremony and awe they had to have the president in their small town speaking at their local college. It was a really well-written piece. It was done from a different angle than we normally cover politics from, the people's reaction to the president coming. So Wall Street Journal, or the uh, the Washington Post, sorry. Washington Washington Post. Post. Okay. You can't I'll forget your <laughs> phone in your car <laughs> anymore. Unless, unless, of course, it's the New York Times. I know. Okay. <laughs> Graham's okay. reading so many free news articles. <laughs> but, he can't but keep But the link, straight. the link will They're be free. the right link. I'll get the link to you. Okay. <laughs> we we will track that down for you. Uh, well, that's it for this week. Thanks to uh, Graham, Paula, and Miriam for joining me in the newsroom studio, and to photographer Sean Butts for capturing our conversation on video. Uh, remember, you can hear previous episodes of the podcast at edmontonjournal.com/opinion or through the Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Uh, Thanks to Sarah for letting me guest host this week. She'll be back in the big chair for the next episode, and by then, we will have our first NDP premier and cabinet officially in office, and boy, does it still sound weird to say that. As always, if you need help making sense of the Alberta political circus, our experts give you the best ringside seat (laughs) in the press gallery.